Before we begin today's uh, podcast, I just want to point out that unfortunately I had a technical difficulty with my microphone in recording this interview, so my audio is not going to be up to its usual standards, and for that I apologize. Otherwise, I hope it doesn't detract from enjoying this most uh, interesting interview and selection of music. Enjoy. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. In the film industry, he's a producer, a writer, and a presenter. He's also a musician, which equips him to understand what he likes in a film score. But from an early age, he wanted to be a stuntman, and unfortunately, injury stopped that. But he had made connections in the stunt world and was able to become friends with many of the world's top stuntmen. The result? Well, now he hosts two different podcasts or YouTube programs about stunt work on films, and we're going to probably talk about that as our conversation continues today. But in the meantime, I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming John Otte to the program. Hi, John. Frank, how are you? Thanks very much indeed for having me on. You there? Oh, my pleasure. I, I'm, I'm delighted, and I am a big fan of your uh, of your YouTube videos on stunt work, and we'll we'll get to that here in a little while. Cool. Um, as, as I do with most of my guests, I always like to get to know a little bit about them as a, as an individual. And, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, the early years, I guess, not uh, maybe, you know, growing up family, uh, what did you do in school? I mean, just kind of the, the, the formative years that you, you know, up until your early adulthood, just yeah. kind of give us a little background on that. Um, well, I'm an only child, so I, I didn't have, um, uh, the, the benefit of, um, of having siblings as a lot of my friends did, uh, at school, which, which, uh, um, I thought was was going to be a problem, really. I, I kind of wanted brothers and sisters when I was young, uh, but never really got round to to getting my head around not having any. And then it's funny when you get older and you suddenly go, yeah, you know, I'm okay on my own. I don't necessarily need brothers and sisters. They seem like such baggage. Um, but uh, but my 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 father was in the services. 
Um, he was in the uh, Royal Engineers, and we traveled about uh, around the world. Um, he, we're all over the place, Germany and, and uh, Greece. And uh, we were in um, uh, we were in Saudi Arabia for uh, what twenty four hours before Gaddafi kicked us all out. So you know it was uh, oh, wow. those 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 early days of uh, of, um, of moving around. And then we ended up in Chatham in Kent, which is where his uh, regiment was based. And uh, we moved here to Leicestershire, northwest Leicestershire, um, as it's known. On the map, if you're looking at a map, you see uh, London. You go up, and there is Birmingham, which is more or less in the middle. And just kind of to the left of that is Leicester, um, which is a a little city just to the the, more or less that side. And um, in and around this area for the last 40-plus years, 50 years nearly, um, school and uh, education, bits and pieces, but it's uh, it's it's a nice place to be. Commuting wise, it's pretty nice because it's uh, the the local motorway, the M1, is the major motorway that that kind of links the south with the north, and it passes right by the bottom of our our road down here, so I can be anywhere really within two hours. Did the um, do you feel? Because I had a similar experience, although I, I didn't move around a lot internationally, but I did move around a lot as a child. My father was in, in the U.S. Navy. Did you think those experiences of living in all these different places and uprooting yourself every couple of years or whatever it was, did, what kind of an impact do you think that had on you? Yeah, I don't think that it was an issue as far as I was concerned, certainly as far as traveling or moving from place to place. Having said that, um as I've gotten older, I am, I have issue with change. I struggle with change a, a bit more maybe than I was aware of when I was much younger. Uh, but in my teens and twenties, you know, I'd be moving about all over the place. I'd be living here and then I'd have to go off to, you know, another city for work or for whatever it was. So it was, um, it wasn't an issue to travel about all over the place and live out of a suitcase. So I, that was second nature to me. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, that that situation whereby at the drop of a hat, he would have to um, to get uh, seconded to different locations. I remember a story he told me when, when he just joined. He joined in 1956. And um, at this particular location where he was, they were there were sections up on the board about where they were being sent to for their initial training. And uh, he he was actually uh, sent relatively locally to where he joined. But there were guys who were going to Christmas Island. And, of course, uh, those guys that went out to Christmas Island were the guys who were um, effectively being the human guinea pigs for the uh, for the explosion, you know, for the for the nuclear testing. And uh, many of those guys who went didn't make it through their 40s or 50s you know they were they were struck down by with cancer and and, uh, and so you know I, he always says you know he really counts his blessings that he he went like 300 yards up the road for his testing to another location whereas a lot of the guys that he joined with um you know all of a sudden they went off and thought, wow christmas island because they'd never been that far before they probably hadn't been on a, on the local ferry for the crossing from one side of the river to the other and yet here they are going to christmas island which was the other side of the world you know so it was exciting travel as far as they were concerned but of course fraught with uh, with consequences so uh yeah 
you know, the, the idea of travel has never really been an issue for me. I don't, I don't mind where it is or what it is I'll go. Well, the other thing, I, because I, again, I had experience with moving around in different places. It's one thing to travel to a place on holiday. It's another to live there and assimilate to the local yeah. culture. And I, my international experience as an adult, I lived in Asia for four years. That, it had a profound effect on me. And that's, that's why I was kind of curious. Right. Um, I well, think now, that... Um, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I think that um, you, you do... My, my father has always been the guy who says, when in Rome, do what the Romans do, right? So uh, very similarly, when you would go to another country, you will do what they do. You eat where they eat. You, you, know, you do the, the same sort of thing that they do. And uh, you understand maybe more, I find anyway, to accept the culture that you're going to, that you're traveling around, and you take a little piece of that and learn by it. Um, whereas, uh, and uh, this is probably um, more so from, a, from a, a British tourist perspective, but there was that period of time during the late 70s, early 80s, where lots of English tourists, I can only speak for English tourists, maybe this didn't happen in America, I don't know, but uh, certainly English tourists would go to, for instance, Spain, Greece, places of this nature, and would be destroyed at the idea that they wouldn't be able to have their own beer, or wouldn't be able to eat the, the traditional English breakfast every morning when they get up in the morning. You know, they would be concerned that they would be presented with an a la carte breakfast or a croissant or something traditional that, that would be eaten in that particular country. So um, we, we adapted, and I, and I think that's given me a great standby for in years to come. I'm always one that wants to, you know, try new things and uh, particularly cuisine. You only have to look at my racing snake figure to to see that I enjoy uh, a provender, wherever it's coming from. <laughs> you, I, I, we, there, there's a lot more we can talk about, but I also want to play some music. And I must tell you, your your list is was surprising to me, and, 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 and I don't mean that in a bad way. It, as I listened to some of these, <laughs> surprising, tunes, they, they, were, they were all across the board. There wasn't any yeah. kind of a running theme or anything. There's really a lot of diversity here, and a lot of composers that haven't been highlighted on our program up until now so i'm i'm excited about yeah, it. i'm delighted i was aware i must admit because i've obviously I've, I'm, I'm a fan of the show so i i'm um i'm kind of aware of the type of stuff that's been played before or the type of composers that have had some highlights before um but generally i i find that there is it's not necessarily certain composers it's certain types of music or certain hooks or things that happen in the moment in a piece of music that suddenly go, oh, and mm. that triggers something in me. Uh, and therefore, I tend to like or adapt myself to that type of music. And uh, I've tried to put a, a collection together that, that kind of ticks a number of boxes. So uh, hopefully we'll get some fun. I agree. I, I... For, those, for those listening millions out there who will understand what I'm talking about <laughs> when you hear these numbers. I can only hope to have that kind of listenership. Um, let's see. Um, the, the first one I was going to play, you uh, one of the favorites you chose was the uh, the overture from Jesus Christ Superstar, which was written by Andrew Lloyd River. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about mm -hmm. why that made your list of favorites. Well, um, 
it's uh, the was the first time that I'd really appreciated the combination of uh, an orchestra and a band working together. Um, if I may digress for just a moment, I'm a I'm a Deep Purple fan. Uh, I, I love the band Deep Purple, okay. and uh, their late great keyboard player John Lord wrote a concerto for orchestra and band, which was performed uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, in fact, in 1969. And it kind of took a call and response approach to a sort of rock ensemble. So the orchestra would provide the intro and then the band would play and the orchestra would add additional elements to the piece. And then a number of years later, I saw Eric Clapton at the Albert Hall again, uh, doing his 24 nights tour and he had a band with him and he also had the national philharmonic orchestra conducted by michael Kamen. and the combination of those two anomalies really worked the idea of taking uh popular familiar tracks that obviously uh, eric clapton's back catalog and throwing an orchestra at it and and rearranging it in such a way so coming back to superstar i heard this years later and was blown away by how good it was and how clever, uh, I thought, anyway, Andrew Lloyd Webber's writing was. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of his, but melody is massively important to me. Um, so yeah. when, when, I, when I listen to anything, the, the, you know, the, the, you, you know, that's a, a huge part of it. And you've got this driving rhythm section and the killer band playing the groove. It's absolutely extraordinary. So uh, uh, this had to be on that list. All right. Well, let's uh, let's hear it for ourselves again. This is the uh, the overture from Jesus Christ Superstar. It's written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I should point out that it was arranged and conducted by Andre Previn. Let's have a listen.
one of the things I mentioned in your introduction was your your interest in becoming a uh, when you were younger, interested in becoming a, a stuntman. Uh, what mm-hmm. was it about stunt work that that kind of grabbed you? What was it that in, in, intrigued you to want to do that for a living? That's a tough way to make a living. Well, it, uh, it was um, the um, um, I'll uh, I'll give you a bite sized breakdown of, of of how this happened. But pretty much, I I went to see a movie at the cinema. Uh, which was Escape to Athena, which was a World War ah. II picture. And um, Roger Moore, Telly Savalas, um, uh, David Niven. And um, in the very few opening moments of the, of the, of the, uh, of the picture, there's, um, uh, it's in occupied Greece during, during World War II, and uh, a German soldier comes into a Turkish bath and fires his weapon into the roof of the, the this very ornate building, and this guy falls through the roof of the Turkish bath into a fountain that is at the bottom, uh, about sixty or seventy feet. Now that was the first stunt that I'd ever seen. I'd never seen anything like that before. Of course, it was on the big screen, and it happened in the first two or three minutes of the the opening uh, titles of this picture. And the guy then I recognised the guy's face, and he cropped up again later on as a German soldier. And then he cropped up again as another character. I thought, wait a second, who is this guy? I was trying to associate why this actor was in a number of different roles. How small is this budget? You know, it's very peculiar. They're, they're trying to you know, reuse the same actors over and over again. Turns out that, of course, it was a stuntman, and the guy's name was Roy Alon. And um, he was part of a very small team. Vic Armstrong was the stunt coordinator. And it was a very small team of stunt guys and girls who'd gone out to to work on this picture. And it's the action is amazingly elaborate and enormous. And yet there's only six of them, you know, and yet they've done everything in the picture. And you go, wow. Now, that was the seed sown right there. Moving right. on, as I was growing up as a, 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 at school on television, we had uh, programs called Stunt Challenge. Now, I don't know whether you had these in the States, but we had these and where it had... Uh, five or six top stuntmen would come along and they would compete against each other for an award. Uh, it was a point scoring thing or an award. Uh, each uh, stunt performer would take the role of the um, the lead actor in this particular scene and they would double them doing whatever the action sequence was. This guy would turn a car over, uh, this guy would fall out of a window, this guy would be on fire, etc., etc. And so that happened over a period of years. And uh, myself and another guy at school, uh, Dean Simpkins, if you're out there, um, he we really got into this in a big way. And point of fact that uh, when we were doing drama at school, um, our, our drama teacher was was uh, she was quite instrumental in allowing us to do um, as much as we were able to do under the circumstances. So we would start choreographing fights in productions um we would do falls we would do everything that we were able to do we did a lot of i talk about in my um in my podcast i talk about a thing called the the two-man switch which happens quite a lot in cinema where the stuntman performs the gag uh the stunt rather i I refer to it as a gag but it's from the the performs the stunt and arrives behind something which the actor is concealed behind and then the actor steps out and continues the role that's the two-man switch. You do it in camera. Well, we used to do a lot of that, 
you know, I would fall wow. or, or Dean would fall and we would fall behind something and then the actor would pop up. So we, we used to do a lot of that going on. So that's how it started. And then many years later, um, I got into a, a situation where that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a stuntman. Um, found out that you had to have a number of qualifications in, in certain disciplines, physical disciplines, in order to to get onto what was then referred to as the the stunt register, the the equity stunt register, the actors union. And um, I got springboard and highboard. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I had to get a number of of uh, qualifications. Uh, to get onto the equity stunt register. So equity, the Axis Union, they had a stunt register. And um, I got uh, springboard and highboard diving. I got that quite quickly and trampolining. So they were the three qualifications I got there. And I was doing horse riding. And Roy, Roy Alon, the guy who uh, who we talked about earlier on, I managed to get in touch with him. And he was was teaching me how to ride or ride as far as film work was concerned. And we were doing... Horse falls and a uh, saddle falls. Oh, yeah. If you look at westerns, the, the uh, guy gets shot, hit with an arrow or something, and then falls mm -hmm. out of the saddle sideways, out the side door. And uh, right. so I was doing that. And we did a number of falls to one side. I was landing on my left. And then we turned the horse around and go the other way, and I was landing on my right. And it, uh, we did two or three falls on the right. And the third one, I heard my hip go. So I cracked my hip. And uh, it just took so long to, to, to get back to, to some sort of normality. And I was struggling to maintain my fitness. So sadly, that's where my um, journey, if you will, to become a stuntman kind of stopped. But I wow. managed to keep in touch with uh, with these guys and then and then channeled it differently where i was i was writing for magazines and uh, uh yeah. websites which were just coming out the internet had just started around about that time uh, a few years later so i was i was doing all of that for for magazines and books and etc etc and uh, before too long well, you know, managed to start doing you know it's interesting you meant you mentioned uh, horse falls you know i some of my listeners know i uh I, I dabble in acting, and one of my first jobs was as a uh, was working background on a western called Magnificent Seven. It was a remake, mm. and um, and they actually, if I recall correctly, set a record for most horse falls ever done on a production. I mean, this was insane. I mean, I got a chance yeah. to watch a lot of it. In fact, I even have one of the the, the stuntmen handed out uh, special hats for people that happen to be on set that day. I'm, it's one of my most prized possessions. It says mag seven stunts or something like yeah. that. But, uh, so I know, you know, I feel for you because I don't know how those guys, I mean, they were landing on, on a lot, you know, the, there was a lot of sand and it was a soft ground where they would land, but I don't care. It's still got to hurt. So that, what a shame that was. I mean, oh, I, it, sure. I mean, is it, it difficult to kind of overcome that? I think, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, concern about, you know the, the the safety aspect as far as the performer's concerned, but rightly so. There's also concern about the safety aspect as far as the animal's concerned. But as I, re I realized quite recently, um, that um, there is a huge amount of safety around the horses. Uh, a, a great many of the gags that they used to perform 
and when I say used to, they, I mean the, the old school, Yakima Kanat and those guys from the old days who were bringing horses down en masse uh, in all sorts of forms. A lot of those horse falls are now outlawed. You don't do them anymore. You know, the Humane Society won't allow them to be done. Uh, and nowadays, huh. what with the, the invention of CGI and various other bits and pieces, uh, horse falls are done differently. There are still falling horses, there are still those horses that are train, trained to lay down, but lay down in a way that they have been shot, for instance. Uh, but uh, th- those dramatic falls that you see where the, you know, the horses are doing the big, they flip, do a big somersault and land on their back and all that sort of stuff, that doesn't happen anymore. But yeah, pictures like those Magnificent Sevens. And I think the other one that, that did a mass horse fall was uh, Durango, I seem to remember, uh, uh, or Django Unchained. That was the other one, I think. It was been, yeah. huge horse fall on there. So, yeah, yeah, big, big stuff. Very popular westerns, even now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what's so funny is that this was, when you, looked at, when you, when you look at the finished product, it shows these snow-capped mountains in the background. Let me tell you something. There ain't no mountains here in Louisiana. And, and there certainly didn't any <laughs> snow on top of them. It was over. It was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day we were out there. So it was, yeah. it's amazing what they can, you know, the magic they can do these days. Um, the magic of cinema. Another one of the, uh, yeah, yeah. Another one of the cues that you had chosen was uh, by one of my favorite composers. This is the end titles from a film called Escape to Victory, and it's written by uh, by uh, yeah. Bill Conti. Tell, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that one. Well, I mean, I, I saw this at the cinema when it came out, uh, which was 1981. And uh, back then, this was this was an event movie, you know. I mean, I, it was a uh, Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone in a movie together. And, and the, a lot of footballers that I was very familiar with, Pele, um, uh, um, Bobby Moore, you know, they had lots of international uh, footballers who were playing the actual footballers in the, in the, in the teams. And, um, of course, I realized that the composer, Bill Conti, had, had scored the first Bond film that I saw at the cinema that year, which was For Your Eyes Only. So I was very interested to see how different those two scores were um, and how versatile Bill was. Because if you take For Your Eyes Only and then listen to the score from Escape to Athena, you have to ask, is this the same guy? It really does. The, the way he adapts the score um, to... You know, it takes it to a completely different place. Um, he also introduced me to the march, which I'm a, a huge fan of. Uh, later on in life, I discovered Raiders of the Lost Ark, the march, the Superman march, and I realized how much I love it. Um, and I think he introduced me to that. There's also a, a wonderful moment in the film where Bill Conti, I think very cleverly, uh, gives a particular scene added emotion and impact by almost doing nothing at all. Um, Every goal, every build-up leading to, to... I don't know if you've seen the movie, but uh, the people who have seen the movie will, will understand that there's that moment where Bobby Moore plays this wonderful ball into the box and Pele, who's already injured, um, he has a, a shoulder injury and he's clutching his shoulder and he manages to jump up in the air and perform this overhead kick, like a bicycle kick, I think they referred to it. But it's covered by about four different cameras Max von Sydow, who is the um, the German uh, commandant, is is in the stands. He's watching this very very closely, and he's the one that stands up and applauds because he thinks this is the most spectacular thing he's ever seen. But what Bill Conti does very cleverly is instead of throwing the kitchen sink at it from a musical perspective, he lays way off it 
and pretty much allows just I think it's a clarinet. It's very, it's something very 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 uh, uh, almost nondescript, but it's just a little something. And as in slow motion, he manages to kick this ball and go into the net. It's it's fantastic. And I was uh, this particular piece of music has always been. I also think he's he's a big fan of um, uh, the Great Escape. I think that's where he's he's a, he's taken the idea of right. I think I need to find some sort of theme that will be you know ultimately used in years to come. And 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 I think he's taken a little element of the Great Escape and he's rejigged it and he's come up with this and it's it's a fantastic piece of music it's absolutely wonderful huh yeah you know and i'm reminded of the of the cliche less is more sometimes and it, and it these mm. days i, I I'm, I'm you know I, i'm not a big fan of a lot of the scores you hear these days because it seems like it's wall-to-wall music sometimes silence or understating it like what you're saying let, let the action on the screen speak for itself you don't need to enhance it because there are other times during a film where you actually do need to enhance it because it'd be kind of boring without music. So but that, that, that seems to have yeah. been lost no, that's, for some reason in recent days. I don't know. Completely, completely correct. Well, I'll tell you one the, thing. Uh, you have a certain I think, piece. My, I, I must admit, I have not seen the film, so now I want to after your description of it. But let's, uh, let's listen to this uh, that John has yeah. chosen for us. This is the end titles from the film called Escape to Victory, and it's written by composer Bill Conte.
one thing I didn't mention on the uh, uh, introduction that I know you had shared with me was that uh, you're a mu musician. I didn't share that you, for instance, played drums. I don't know. Are there any other instruments you play by any chance? I know there's a lot of people now up and down the country going, wait a second, he said he's a musician and he plays drums. Make your mind up. Are you a musician or do you play drums? Uh, this is um, uh, something I've had to live with for many, many years. But um, uh, from my point of view, I mean, the reason that I became a drummer was because I wasn't terribly happy playing anything else. And uh, this is, I don't know whether this, this is a, a standard thing. Um, I have, um, uh, I would love, one of my dreams is to be uh, a wonderful jazz pianist like Dudley Moore, for instance, a wonderful example would be to, to play jazz piano like Dudley Moore. And I'm unable to do that because my left hand and my right hand, uh, I can't play the bass notes with my left hand and the melody with my right hand. For some reason, I can't do that. The guitar, I can't make the shapes with my left hand and play and strum the notes with my right hand. And yet with the drums, I can do four things at once. I can do two separate things with my hands and two different things with my feet. Now, that's just something instinctive in me. And, and consequently, it meant that playing the drums came kind of easy. Um, and it got to the stage where, you know, I, I knew where where that backbeat should be. And I, could, I was also very aware of, of listening to something where that's not in the right place. That's not where it needs to be. You're early or you're, you know, you're rushing this or just ease off a little. So that kind of thing, I've always been very happy playing drums. Um, I'm, uh, I sing a bit too, but I'm always referred to as, uh, I like to refer to myself as a drummer who sings as opposed to a singing drummer. Uh, but, um, I did, I fronted a big band for quite some time as the drummer and singer. I must admit that was interesting. That was a big 11 piece band. And, uh, we play, if it, if it had horns in it, we played it, you know, uh, everything from Saduk, uh, to, you know, you, you, uh, oh, I don't know, big band number, buddy, rich numbers, you name it, we did it all. Uh, but it was very interesting to have that, that whole concept of stuff, but I, I don't play any other instrument. Um, but I think the drums and the, the bass are the most important thing in any band really they're the they are the section they are the the um um they're the engine that drives everything along and once if they just sit nice and tightly then everybody else can do their own thing um and uh it, well, it has curious. it's caused me some issues a lot sorry go on ahead <laughs> no no, no I, I i noticed on a couple of the cues that you chose and i'm curious if this happens because you're a drummer and you know in the I don't know if that means, I don't know all the technical things that percussion, I don't know if percussion means the same thing as drummer, but it seemed to me that I found a couple of these cues had a, an emphasis on, on drums or percussion. Does that influence some of your things that you like in film music? I think it does. I, I think I, I listen to stuff and firstly, I think, Oh, I like that. Then I ask myself, why do I like it and try and explore it a bit more? Well, that bass line is fantastic. I like that bass line. And, and the thing that the drummer's doing with the hi-hats, he's, he's, he's playing 16th notes, but he's doing something a little different with it. And he's raising his foot every other bar. Oh, that's nice. And you start to hear stuff. And, and I, I do also think that in my head I go, I can play that. I think I can play that, you know, and on the strength of that, 
you, you think, yeah, you try and put yourself in the in that drummer's shoes. There's there's a number of drummers who, I mean, many of the the drummers who work on the on the tracks that I've chosen today are some of the world's top session players, and you would, you, I would remove an arm happily just to be would defeat the object completely but i would remove an arm in order to be in their position just for five minutes um but i do think it has a lot to do with it but it has i was just gonna say it it, it has been also a bit of a hindrance because i can't watch a band live without watching the drummer i tend to miss sometimes i i i I spend so much time watching the drummer that I can't enjoy the entire band together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's the same thing with me when I, when I started to act in my later years and those sorts of things. Now I, when I watch a, a, a film or a television show, I start, wow, I wonder how many takes they had to do with that. Or well, that was really, that took mm. a lot of time to set up, didn't it? You know, it's, it almost takes away. You're right. The, uh, uh, the pleasure of just sitting there and enjoying it for what it is. Um, I I do want to ask you, because you had mentioned in some of our correspondence, might be kind of fun to tell this story. Tell us a little bit about this gig that you got with, uh, and forgive me if I mispronounce it, Celia Black, is that right? Cilla Black was a uh, uh, was a big singing sensation in the '60s, and she was signed to the same label that the Beatles were, with Brian Epstein's label, and um, she was huge in the '60s. She sang um, the. What's a good example of her work? Al, she sang the theme to Alfie um, with Burt Bacharach playing piano. Uh, she she also did uh, had a number of hits. Um, uh, Anyone who had a heart was a was a was a big hit of hers. And so anyway, she went through the sixties as a as a as a, uh, a singer. She had a lot of in the seventies. She started a, a television career, and so she would have her own. TV show on a Friday or a Saturday night, and in the eighties she came. That a lot of television was was revolving around uh, game shows, and so in the in the eighties she had a, a TV show called Blind Date. Uh, and I'm trying to think. You, I guess you guys have it over. It was the dating game, maybe. I think it might have been called over there. Um, yeah, you have one person, and you have three contenders who would like to go out with that person. And they have to ask a series of questions, and then they get fought, they go on the date. Well, she was the host of that show for many years, and also another TV show called Surprise Surprise, where she would bring families together from all you know people who hadn't seen their parents for years. She would do it, and then she she left and she went off and uh, and she was quite quiet for a period of time. And again, I was uh, I'd been playing in bands and I'd been playing in I knew a lot of engineers and we played at a lot of studios all over the country. And I was in one one day, and um, the the uh, engineer said, uh, "Are you free next week to do a to do a session um, uh, for a guy, a drummer who's pulled out of a session? I need to I need to fill it." And I said, "Sure, okay." And he told me the rates. Well, the rates were fairly standard. We used to get daily rate, so it didn't matter what it was. Um, and although I don't read uh, music. Uh, on a session, you you get an opportunity to, you know, have a run through the number so you know where all the parts are, and before too long, you have a an idea of what you're what you're looking for. So I said, yeah, that's okay, I'll do it. And I went and did this, and it turned out that uh, we were we were working on tracks for an album by Cilla Black, and uh, and and there she was, you know, big as big as brass, and she was as exciting as as ever. Uh, great fun to be around, and, and we spent. Uh, 
five or six hours with her. We, we put a couple of tracks down one day. We went back into two or three the next day. And um, she was great fun, you know. Uh, she's passed away, sadly, now, but uh, but she was great fun to work with. And uh, whenever I hear her voice, I always go, ah, oh, yes, you know, I've done, I had a little part in in, uh, in her life, and she had a, a, a huge part in mine. So uh, it's, uh, it's a, a great reminder. What a great story. What a great story. Um, mm. Going back to music, there was a, uh, one of the – one of the cues you chose was a, a main title theme. Uh, the film is called A Company of Wolves. And this is someone, uh, uh, yeah. who, uh, the composer is George Fenton, which I don't think has been featured on this program before, but I'm familiar with his work. Um, kind of give us a little bit of an indication as to why you wanted to include this on your list. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe British uh, listeners would be would be familiar with George Fenton. Uh, from from the BBC's point of view, he originally worked as a television composer, and uh, worked um, in the, I suppose it would be the late seventies, early eighties, on a couple of cop dramas. Uh, one was called Shoestring, which was about a believe it or not, a radio DJ who solves crimes. Now, Frank, this could be it. This could be the thing for you, you know. This could be a new thing. Uh, you do a radio show during the day, and then in the evening, there you are, cruising the the cruising the, the streets, solving crime. Uh, so that's what they had. They had a TV show like that. And another one, uh, which was a much more famous show, maybe, called Bergerac, uh, which was about a policeman who works for the Bureau des Etrangers in Jersey. Uh, the Isle of Jersey, um, and uh, he composed the themes for both of those shows, and they were very popular themes. Bergerac, of course, a very popular theme. You, uh, I'll um, I'll send you a link to it so you're familiar with it. But um, for for years for for future reference, but it is it was a very popular theme. Now, on the strength of that and his popularity, he then started to do some film work and uh, fell in with um, Sir Richard Attenborough. And so started doing many of his scores, including Gandhi, Cry Freedom, um, Shadowlands. That was one of his Grey Owl, I think in Love and War as well. They had a great working relationship together. And I discovered this track um, on a compilation. And I think the compilation was called something like British cinema classics. They were original tracks and they were taken from purely British movies that came out uh, late 83, early 84. And I think this came out um, the Christmas of 84. And um, it was the first time I'd heard this. And as a, I'd never seen the film, but to listen to it as a piece of music, it's a it's an extraordinary piece of music. It's very it's very well layered. There's a story going on in the piece of music, and he's developed this the the coda the the the, uh, the ending piece the, the 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 piece of music that 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 ends the phrase is kind of the big hook in the whole thing. It's got a lovely orchestration to it. It's beautiful, and um, it's always been a, a huge favorite of mine. Certainly. All right. Well, let's. Uh... Let's have a listen to this. Again, this is the main title theme from a film called A Company of Wolves, and it's written by composer George Fenton. Little girls, this seems to say, never stop upon your way. Never trust a stranger friend. 
no one knows how it will end. As you're pretty, so be wise. Wolves may lurk in every guise. Now, as then, tis simple truth. Sweetest tongue has sharpest tooth. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com 
slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. All right, now here I put you under a lot of pressure to try to come up with your, you know, most favorite music cues. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> ask a similar question. You're, you, maybe you can already figure out what I'm gonna ask. Do, do you have like a, I don't know, top five list of some of the best stunts you've ever seen, uh, or, oh or you know, or whatever, you know, it can be three, it can be ten, I don't know. But I mean, are there some stunts that stand out to you that are like, wow, these are, these were just spectacular. Um, it won't Off be the top ten. Of that. I know. Much. Um, yeah. Well, just whatever comes to mind. I mean, yes. you know, no one's going to hold you to it. <laughs> I, I mean, certainly, uh, and um, uh, if if you look at the way that that action and film has progressed, then we mentioned we touched on him earlier, Yakima Kanut, but he was such an influence on on many professionals in the business and uh filmmakers over the years that he worked uh, very closely with john wayne and um admiral john ford on those uh, john wayne pictures um and i think that pictures like stagecoach for instance where you know you've got the the drag under the stagecoach and then uh, that was was done at a at a certain speed and um influenced many people to to go and do it again he did it himself on two or three occasions and later on in life uh, terry leonard another extraordinary uh, american stuntman got to the stage where he was able to or given an opportunity to do it on a, on a thing called legend of the lone ranger uh which he did um um uh, when you look at, if you compare the two pieces of footage, the speed that his horses are going in this, the ears are right back and they are really motoring. They're at top, top speed, I think. And uh, he didn't come out of this very well at all. He, the, the, he came out sideways instead of coming out straight and the carriage rolled over both of his legs and left a huge dent in his calf one side. So he was in a real state and had still had this thing where he just wasn't able to get it done properly on screen and so eventually in uh, it, it took Steven Spielberg to to say right we're going to do Raiders of the Lost Ark and and incidentally if you want to do that Yakima cannot drag under the carriage thing you can do it on there and they did it on the truck instead so that's you know it's it's kind of worked its way all the way through yeah so that's how it originated it originated with a 1939 uh, Yakima Kanut going under the under the horses in stagecoach, and ended up him finally getting a chance to do it. Terry Leonard getting a chance to do it in 1981's um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But that that's a, a good example of, of progression and how people have unfinished business with certain gags. Um, but there are a number of stunts. I, I like those blink and you'll miss them moments. Uh, I refer to this a lot on on my. Um, 
on my podcast, there's a number of gags that you tend to, you don't associate with, you know, people remember in the Bond movies, for instance, people remember the guy skiing off the cliff, Rick Sylvester skiing off the cliff and the parachute opening or, or jumping out of the airplane at the start, but they don't tend to remember the guy being knocked down on the, on the bridge whilst being chased by the tank in Goldeneye. Those moments are some lovely moments there. Uh, and they've still spent, you know, a week, 10 days, however long they've spent rehearsing, testing, getting this absolutely to the point where it cannot go wrong for a, you know, a two second shot on screen. I think it's fascinating to think that that's all happening. But um, do I have a top three? I don't really think I have a, uh, certainly not a top three that I can give you off the top of my head. No, because they're, they're um, yeah, that, that's fine. I don't mean to pressure you into singling out one stunt versus another one. Although you brought up two that certainly occur to me, and you know, uh, truth be told, you and I kind of have a connection because we're both uh, aficionados of James Bond. Uh-huh. I, I always loved, I you know, I loved the ski jump in Spy. But I yes. must tell you, the thing, the one that stunt that really fascinated me, that I thought was incredible, was in Moonraker. That that skydive. I mean, oh. and I know they had you know parachutes under the coats, and I, but still, I mean, that was just that was spectacular, and I. I can't even begin to rem- uh, to think about how many. I seem to recall they said like five hundred jumps to film all that. I don't know what it was ultimately, but you, I mean you only had like I don't know what twenty or thirty seconds per jump to be able to get some usable footage. So I mean I just can't imagine yeah. how many times they had to and, do that. And you, also, you 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 take take into consideration that when the, I mean that, that that's a it's a revolutionary jump. There had never been anything like that before ever. Full stop. To to have somebody jump out of an aircraft wearing the parachute underneath your wardrobe um, would, would, you know, be considered pointless beforehand. Why? You know, you want the parachute to deploy clearly and, and simply and safely. But they had worked a system whereby they had the clothing specially made so that it would cover... Uh, you know, the, the items were slightly larger and they were buttoned in certain ways or they had... Um, uh, Velcro straps or zips, or they're easy to get in and out of, but they were large enough to accommodate the the parachute at the back and to allow it to deploy. And bear in mind also that yeah. there's three of them in the air. There's the two guys. There's B.J. Worth and Jake Lombard who are doubling Bond and the pilot, and they're fighting over an empty parachute, incidentally, which is even more peculiar. But the third guy is the camera guy, Randy DeLuca, who is in the in the air, yeah. um, and he's filming all of this. Um, and uh, then you've got Mr. Luganbill, Ron Luganbill, who comes along, who is doubling Jaws. And he was interesting because your average skydiver was five foot six, five foot seven. Well, <laughs> the, the character he's doubling is seven foot two. Where are you going to find somebody who looks good in, pr- in proportion to that? And they managed to find Ron, who was, I think, six foot six. He was unusual for, for a skydiver at that time, but put him in, you know, uh, put him in larger clothing and uh, get him to hold his wrists in a certain way so that he looks much taller, much bigger on screen. All right. It, it, and it kind of works, you know, but uh, yeah, fascinating. And the, I say the first time. And then after that, every other parachute thing you ever saw in a movie, which had somebody falling out of an airplane or falling out of a building and they had to deploy a parachute for safety purposes afterwards. It was all because of this. So this is an absolute landmark moment in cinema. The other thing I recall about that stunt too was they they had to 
they stumbled upon a special lens to use on this helmet can to film it. And it was, it was, uh, if, if memory serves, it was like, it was a little bit more lightweight than a, than a typical cinemascope mm. or Panavision lens would be. Because if you think about it, if you've got a lot of weight on your head and all of a sudden you, you know, you yank the cord for a parachute, the guy's neck could be broken because of all that weight that's on his head. Is, is that ring a bell with you? Do you remember anything about that? Yeah, it was a, a Paniflex camera. I think they found um, an, an early Paniflex. prototype okay. Paniflex. It was lightweight, and I think Michael Wilson found it in a in a junk shop in uh, in Paris, as I seem to remember. But you're quite right. The That's the, um, the cameraman, yeah. of course, has to wear the camera on his helmet. There's nowhere else for him to have it. Yeah, and so in order for him not wow. to get huge whiplash, or even worse, break his neck because of the the uh, the 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 g force of that parachute opening they had to tie uh, some rope around the uh, the parachute cables so that it would open slower than per normal so it wouldn't do that um, it wouldn't wrench his neck back but i remember it vividly yes absolutely wow that's just amazing absolutely amazing well Again, kind of continuing on some of the cues that you've chosen, and, and and again, I love the variety. This is this is great fun to play all these different types of styles and whatnot. You've chosen another comp uh, composer that I'm quite familiar with from, for a couple of films, such as like Wild Geese or Sea Wolves or things of that nature. Um, this is uh, by composer Roy Budd, and the film is called, uh, it's the end titles from the film called Who Dares Wins. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, your, your thinking behind including that in your list. Um, well, I mean, uh, uh, Roy Budd, um, it was a kind of a genius, really. He was a self-taught pianist. He adored jazz and, uh, yeah. he kind of became the sort of go-to go man for film work in the UK at the time. John Barry had the cornered, cornered the market with the big budget stuff and everything else was kind of distributed between Roy Budd and, and, uh, Richard Rodney Bennett. I seem to remember the two of them, uh, splitting the difference, but he has this real jazzy pop style, um, that appealed to those sort of cutting edge directors. And, um, uh, the uh, the first time I ever heard him really was was on um, Get Carter, the uh, Michael Caine film, oh. Mike Hodges picture from 1971. He does the music for that. It's a wonderful opening sequence on a train, and it's got this terrific uh, organ based jazz feel to it. It's it's a super little thing, but really, I didn't get a chance to see this movie at the cinema. It was a it was a 15 certificate I remember, but the theme was used a lot to promote the movie. And the first time I saw it, I think it was on the TV. Uh, what year would it be? 86, 87. And I recorded the theme, the end titles as they played. I held a, a little cassette recorder next to the TV and recorded the theme. <laughs> so I'd got it. And that was the, well, I, I had the only that. One that, did that kind of no, no, absolutely. Cause the stuff, you know, back in the day, there just wasn't the, the, the stuff that the availability there is now. So I had to wait until the mid nineties before I managed to buy the soundtrack on vinyl. Um, and that was, you know, the problem with all of that was, was, uh, uh, whenever I, whenever I heard anything that was SAS related, whether it was on the news, whether it was in the newspaper or, uh, you know, there was a TV drama. I heard this theme in my head, even if it wasn't connected to it, that's what it did to me. Um, but I, I think that, um, it's a perfect combination of horns, uh, 
There's a wonderful wah-wah pedal on the guitar through the whole thing. Uh, he's playing a Moog. There's a synthesizer, a Moog. And um, it's absolutely wonderful. But he, he, he died really early. He was 46 when he died. He died... Uh, oh, my. In, he had a he had a brain hemorrhage, yeah, in 93. And he was only 46 when he passed oh, away. And I, I find that such a such a waste. I, I, um, I think uh, there was a big a big void in in film composing when he left and i don't think there's been anybody so far who has been able to fill that void that he left but i'm sure that uh, if he was alive today and, and could see that sort of new wave love for the films that he scored um i'm sure he'd be thrilled by it. but this is a you, there's a certain age group of people you play this to them and they go oh this is one of the very best, and it's certainly one of my favourites. It's always on my my list of, of uh, tracks to play in the car and stuff like that. It's terrific. All right, well, let's uh, let's have a listen then. This is, uh, again, the end titles from a film called Who Dares Wins, and it's written by composer Roy Budd.
here's a question I I actually I was proud of myself for thinking of it because and I think you'd be a perfect person asked uh, ask this question has because I have a, I have a real problem with this you maybe you'll understand as we get into it has CGI hurt the stunt business does that make sense um yeah no I understand that completely what what it has done it 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 has it has taken the focus away from some of those moments in a movie that would back in the 70s and 80s be standalone moments uh, let me give you an example of this for instance um um there was a movie oh half a dozen years ago called Assassin's Creed and uh, right. it was based on a i think a computer game it was based on a computer game and they made it into a live action picture and um there is a moment in it where a particular character dives from the top of a tower and um it, it was used in all of the um, advertising campaigns it was a very in your face moment to to say look this is Assassin's Creed now they had a um lots of behind the scenes stuff and one of the uh, moments in this was about this particular high fall, which was performed by a British stuntman called Damien Walters. And uh, they really big noted it and said, look, this is the, the, the first major high fall for many, many years. And, and by that, we say that it, it was 125 feet from this platform into an airbag. Now, mm. nowadays, stunt guys don't do a hundred foot falls anymore. Vic Armstrong used to do them all the time. Roy Alon used to oh. do them all the time. Um, and there were guys in the States who would go higher and higher and higher. Dar Robinson, who's a, uh, a name that people will conjure with, went 300 feet well, on one occasion uh, from, a, from, a, from a helicopter at the U.S. fair. But in, um, what happened here is that, okay, so he dives and he does this a spectacular, beautifully timed swan dive from the top into this airbag, and it's fantastic. The edit in the movie, well, the fall looks like it's 45, 50 feet. And then he falls into clouds, or he falls into whatever the CGI is. And I just, I think, I'm not understanding why you're having to have the guy jump 125 feet in the first place so that you can then CGI over most of the fall. If he fell 70 or 80 feet and then CG'd the bottom, you could understand it. But I think he got mugged, uh, you know, because it was filmed from above. The camera position was a filmed from above, so you see him falling away. Many of the, the high falls that had been in cinema prior to this had been from below or opposite. You know, you would see the fall from a couple of camera angles, Traditionally, you'd see it, the guy falling down towards the camera or towards the ground from below. Um, so I, I think what's happened now is that there are situations where the script will say this character must fall to his death thousands of feet. Well, now you can do the first 35, 40 feet and then CGI will take over the rest. Um, we touched on Raiders of the Lost Ark earlier, if you remember with the... Um, the truck chase in that Indy's driving the truck, yeah. truck and he throws the vehicle into one of the German vehicles that are chasing and they fly off the cliff. Well, you can see very clearly that it's a painting that they're flying off into and that the special effects aren't 
really very special. But of course, at the time, 1981, these were cutting edge. So we've come an awfully long way, and it does look more realistic now than ever before. Um, but you're not going to get those those big standout moments that you used to get uh, on pictures in the in the 70s and 80s. You don't need to have them anymore because they can be created in the in the computer. Not a bad thing, but also I think it I think it takes something away from from the excitement element. I, I think anyway. Well, I mean, all right, called, called me old fashioned or not willing to change my ways or whatever. But I, the thing I find frustrating or difficult is, is, is I'll watch a lot of movies today, particularly action movies where you'll, it's obvious that CGI is being used and, and, it, and you know, let's face it, yep. it's pretty doggone realistic, but you know, for a fact that that is impossible. This could not happen or that, you know, it's just, it's just not, yeah. it's not, it's not real. You, it's obvious, even though it looks real, it's obvious that it's computer generated, you know, for commercials on television. Okay. You know, I think it works for that, but for movies, I'm not so sure. I, am I alone in that opinion? Do you think, or I guess I, I really, uh-huh. I've gotten to where I'm not real keen on CGI anymore. Yeah, I think you have to. There, 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 are, there has to be guidelines. There has to be lines drawn somewhere. If the CGI is to enhance the physical stunt that's being that's taken place, um, then I can see it being beneficial. But when you have, and I have to use uh, one of the Fast and Furious movies as an example of this, when you have a car which is being driven from one skyscraper into another. And then, you know, uh, the guys jump from the... I mean, it, the physics says that you can't do yeah. this, even with CGI, yeah. the, the idea that you can do all of this. So I think that there has to be... If, if the CGI is being used to create uh, a, a more exciting moment than that one that's on screen, but you know that... There is there's physically a stuntman in that car, or there is physically a stuntman on fire there, and if you see that, you know, five or six of them and then the remaining 50 or 60 are created by CGI, okay. <laughs> but when, when you've got a situation where you've got something that physically isn't possible and they're selling it to you as though, hey, this is, this is easy, this can be done. I suppose the Bond movies have done that to a point in certain places, but, you know, we, we have to draw the line that. somewhere. But it, it, it's becoming the norm. You're quite right. It is becoming a very normal uh, situation to have these weird and wonderful moments. And then they're just put down to, well, you know, the CGI was great, so you can't tell the difference. But um, yeah, you, you may not be able to tell the difference, but you know whether something <laughs> is right or not, you know. Uh, another cue you chose is, um, I, I guess I would say, by my second favorite composer, and I'm talking about Jerry Goldsmith, and the film is called King Solomon's Minds. You uh, yeah. wanted to highlight the end titles from that particular film. Tell me a little bit about your thinking on on why you like that score so much. Well, I mean, uh, J- Jerry Goldsmith is a, is a uh, John Barry was that was was really the, the the person that got me into film scores, and once I started understanding and loving his work then I started branching out and Jerry Goldsmith was my second port of call. And, um, I don't know. He, he just, he just enhances everything he touches. Um, I, I take nothing away from, from any of those other marches that we talked about earlier on. 
they all work and some more than others. But this for me, and again, this is my own personal opinion. I can see people going, no, no, and screaming out loud. But for me, this is absolutely as good as it gets. It's spectacularly good. And what makes it more intriguing, uh, and this is maybe another reason why I like it so much, is that this movie is an absolute stinker. It's a shocking film. Um, It is the most awful version of King Sullivan Mines you could ever imagine. Um, I've spoken to people who worked on the picture. It was a horror story. Nobody got paid properly. The script was being written as the camera rolled. You know, the director had given up all hope. And yet, Jerry Goldsmith is presented with this clown car of nonsense and produces this absolutely gorgeous score. Um, And he smooths all the edges and he gives it that touch of class that requires to make it you know, bearable to the average moviegoer. The one thing that I came out with, and I did see this movie at the cinema, um, God help me, but I think I must have been the only person who did, but I, I, but, but I did see it, and the, 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 the score, the theme to this is magnificent. He's taken, he's, now, and now bear in mind, Jerry Goldsmith is, is a man who really understands a theme right? He said himself, the most complicated theme he ever did was Star Trek, the motion picture, because he really had to dig deep and find something that was workable, but he wasn't allowed to use the original theme, the television theme, but he needed to find something that was absolutely going to enthrall the audience when they heard that opening piece of music. And so he did that with, and that's exactly what he's done with this. Now, I believe that this music gets lost terribly in the movie. But if, and those people who have seen the movie may not appreciate the score. But if you've never seen this movie, I urge you not to. Don't see it. Just take the score. The score is available. It's online, or you can buy it if you wish to do so. Please listen to it as one piece of music. Uh, And there are so many wonderful elements. And from this, you will understand why uh, Jerry Goldsmith is so important to cinema as a composer. He he's also very very keen on 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 working with new technology. He loves new stuff. If there's new stuff about, he'll start. Oh, let me use that. Let me utilize this. But what he's done here is he's gone right back to brass tacks, and I think he's listened to. Uh, um, uh, John, what John Williams had done with with Raiders of the Lost Ark and that sort of thing, and he thought, I can do something like that, but obviously I can't step all over John Williams' march. I want to do something different, and he's really captivated it. And so, this um, this this for me is as good as it gets. I think it's absolutely spectacular. The hairs on the back of the neck will be standing on end when you get to that final uh, uh, final section of this. It's breathtaking. Oh, excellent! That's uh. Let's hear it for ourselves. Again, this is the end titles from the film called King Solomon's Mines, and it's composed by composer Jerry Goldsmith.
<laughs> well, maybe we won't watch King Solomon's Mines, but we'll listen to the score. Which kind of reminds me, do you... I, I, I think... There, it's unusual to find a composer that serves the needs of the film first, but it also happens to be listenable separate from the film. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that uh, I think you touched on it earlier on, but there are there are soundtracks and scores these days um, that just they don't. They, yeah, they are they are written specifically for the movie but they don't seem to have the same elements um the same boxes ticked as as other composers and again we we you know as well as i do we go back to john barry with with bond but it's such a, a good example take any of john barry's bonds and whether they're popular or not to a whole bunch of people man with the golden gun is a terrific score it's a lovely. Oh, yeah. You can listen to it on its own. Diamonds are forever. I think, without question, is my favourite John Barry Bond score. I think it's beautiful. He really does lay out a whole bunch of great stuff and gives it. If you didn't know the movie was set in Vegas, you listen to this. You go, "Oh, I have a pretty good idea where I think this movie is set." He gives you everything. He dresses it all up and says, "Hey, listen yeah. to this. Have an idea what I'm trying to do here." Um, and I think he does it very, very well. And yet, if you compare it um, with maybe some of the later scores in particular, and this is, um, not, take nothing away from Thomas Newman, but the Skyfall and Spectre scores, um, I think are quite samey. They, they repeat a lot of cues. Uh, also, what they mm -hmm. do is they don't seem to be terribly inventive with... Um, with melody particularly i know that maybe that isn't specifically what what the direction of the film was going in but i if you take all no, of no, john barry's each of those cues had a melody and a, and a and a and a a point a and a point b to get to and that there was a lovely melody running it through a love theme or whatever it was it got you there and i don't think that happens anymore so i think it is a a, a great difference and uh, listening to a score nowadays because obviously scores that they tend to be available before the movie comes out in certain cases so you get to listen to the score and go do you know what i'd like to see this movie and i think that happens on a, on a lot of occasions these days i know there's a number of occasions i've listened to a score and been the movie's been sold to me based on listening to it and then i've gone to see it and i've either enjoyed it or it's been a massive disappointment but at least i've taken something how, how from it and the score is often that thing yeah I, 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 fascinating because I, my experience has been that sometimes when I've heard the score before seeing the movie, I'm disappointed in the score. But then once I see uh, the the pictures, the visuals with the score, it's like, oh wow, this is great. So I mean, I, I've had almost an opposite opposite experience. But I but I understand what you're saying. It's a uh, <laughs> it's 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 you know it's part of the creative principle. It's why it's called art. You know, it's not not going to connect with everybody. That's it. All Absolutely. The same yeah, so much involved. I mean, I remember wow. vividly, and I, I do remember this vividly, which was um, uh, hearing John Barry's score for Dances with Wolves. And I, I heard that long before I saw the movie. And the score itself is just spectacular. It is. Um, it's classical music. There's no toys about that. It, it is, you know, the, the, we have a radio station. You probably have a radio station there. We have a radio station in the UK called Classic FM, and they play classic music right 
but nowadays nowadays they are being slightly more influenced by film and there are film pieces coming in and john barry's works are being utilized more and more and i you know 30 40 50 100 years from now these will be the classical composers that people refer to as as now we refer to um you know vivaldi and, and tchaikovsky and uh, mozart etc i think that's what will happen right. in the years to come i think you're right i think you're right one of the um, one of the other cues that you chose that when I was listening to it, and I, this is a film I hadn't seen, but I, I need to because I'm a fan of Blake Edwards' work and of um, uh, Peter Sellers. And I'm also a fan of someone who doesn't get it talked about a lot in film score circles, at least my experience has been, and that's Henry Mancini. I, I just think he was brilliant. He's probably in my top five as well of favorite composers. The, uh, the film I'm talking about is called The Party. You chose the main title from that film. Tell me a little bit about what your thinking was on, uh, on wanting to include this on your list. Uh, the first time I was introduced to Henry Mancini was was through an album called In the Pink, which he did with um, uh, world-famous flautist James Galway, an Irish flautist. Um, and what oh, they had yeah. done was they'd taken the arrangements of, of many of Henry's classics, the Pink Panther, uh, what else was on there, Baby Elephant Walk, um, the Thornbirds, right. and and had given the lead melody to the flute, and um, they'd been rearranged this way. It's absolutely beautiful, very melodic, um, and I, I immediately fell in love with with Henry Mancini, and I, I I continue to to this day. Every time I hear something, I I I, um, I, I just I absolutely I love what he does, uh, and his. His light. Do you know what he reminds me of? Sorry, I'm just going off on our tangent for a moment. That's just uh, sure. Mantovani. That's what I I always used to think yeah. of when I heard of Henry Mancini. I would I would think that's almost like Mantovani. It's got that really light string yeah. section going on the whole time. Um, and of course, once I once I heard this album, then I wanted off to go and explore. His work, and of course, I was, this is before the days of the internet, so you had to go to specialist record stores or you had to go to specialist catalogues. <laughs> and after time, you, I discovered The Party. Of course, I discovered the Pink Panther movies, discovered The Party. And um, the idea of and this track is a, is a wonderful example. Um, it's 1968, I think. And they're, obviously right. the, the lead character, Peter Sellers' character, is, is an Indian actor. And the main, th the, the main theme has this sitar, which is being used almost as a lead guitar through the score. Um, and yeah. Mancini's way of blending contemporary uh, sounds with uh, spiritual sounds from Sellers' character. I think it's, it's always a favorite of mine, and I would love to have... I would love to have met Henry Mancini if I had a chance, just so I could call him Hank, as everybody used to call him Hank. <laughs> I would love to have had an opportunity to sit down and go, can I just take five minutes and tell you why I adore you? Uh, he'd probably just ask me to go away, but I, I would uh, I would have liked that opportunity. So. I understand. I do. I understand. Well, let's, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is the main title from a film called The Party, and it's composed by composer Henry Mancini. Thank you. 
I, I, I have a feeling I know what you'll say to this, but it's still worth discussing briefly. Um, do you think that a time will ever come where, where stuntmen will ever get Oscar recognition? I mean, you know, get handing out Academy Awards for Best Stunt of the Year or something like that? Um, it's It's been in the talking for many years. And certainly as far as the um, um, Academy is concerned, for the last 30 plus years, um, they have said no. They've turned it down. Uh, uh, the couple of years, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, Brad Pitt won uh, Best Supporting Actor for his work in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood playing a stuntman. Uh, of course, in yeah. Tarantino's picture, he plays a stuntman. And he said on stage, I think it's about time that we gave some love to our stunt coordinators and stunt performers. Now, with all the best will in the world currently, I think that that's still going to fall on deaf ears at this stage. Uh, other organizations have fallen in, though. You know, SAG, they have a, an ensemble award. Um, and I think the Emmys do right. a similar exercise. We don't have one over here currently. Our BAFTA doesn't do one. Um, it has a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, but uh, Vic Armstrong, to my knowledge, is the only one who has ever been awarded with one. Um, so we don't have an equivalent over here currently. And, you know, it's kind of another reason why I do what I do. Um, recognition for me is key. Um, credit where credit is due. I think that um, there are, we talked about Terry Leonard earlier. He's a great example of somebody who doesn't want the exposure. He doesn't need to be the name, you know, as far as he's, as far as the audience is concerned, that's Harrison Ford underneath that truck. And that's fine. As far as he's concerned, he just takes the paycheck and goes home because that's his job. You know, he, he's fully aware of that. There, there are stunt guys these days all over the world and it's a new world. You know, it's a, um, what's the, every movie at one point used to say, be careful. There's a new breed on the streets. Well, that's exactly what happens nowadays, you know, where you have, um, stunt guys coming along who of course are, um, Instagram famous or they're, or they're so many different outlets available to them now. And sometimes they, um, are more recognizable than the character or actor that they're doubling. So things have changed. Um, Will there ever be uh, an award from the Academy? I, I think at the moment, possibly not, maybe further down the line, but I don't think it would be, logically, you'd want something which would be an ensemble-based. So if you are um, having an award for a particular movie, it would be for everybody involved in that movie. Uh, we ask now, of course, that um, hair and makeup were in a similar situation. I don't think they had, uh, they didn't have an Oscar until about 1980. 1980 or 1981 mm, so they would have sure, had to wait a very long time as well and i dare say that they yeah. would have been in the same boat they'd have been saying isn't it about time that that hair and makeup uh, got a got an oscar and eventually they did but they had to wait about 60 years to get one so maybe maybe we're <laughs> in a similar situation i don't know but uh, time will tell yeah yeah the um the last cue that we were going to play as part of your list I think you know where I'm going with this. And I saved, the, in my humble opinion, the best for last. Everybody on this podcast knows my favorite composer, no question about it, is John Barry. And, and you've chosen, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. 
it, you've chosen one of the most exquisite and beautiful pieces he ever wrote for a film called Line in Winter. And what you've chosen is the Shinon Eleanor's arrival uh, from the film The Line in Winter. T tell me a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm biased, I'm sorry, but I should I should hand it over to you. Why, why did that make your list of favorites? I'm just curious. I'm, I know I'm leaning on an open door with you here, but I, I, I will say that it is, um, as, we as we touched on earlier, John Barry is, is probably where my love of film music came from. And um, I was given a collection of, of, his, of his work on cassette, I remember, and I played it to death. And it wasn't just um, his familiar themes and works from the Bond films, but also had many extraordinary cues, one of which was from line of winter and, and it's a great example of him throwing the kitchen sink at a project and delivering everything he promised and more the the opening theme itself is spectacular oh. Um, oh. Uh, without yes. question uh, and i i also remember um a wonderful story told uh, by the film's director anthony harvey who uh was was very familiar with john barry's work because uh, he was an editor on the whisperers and on the Dutchman, wow. which also was was a couple of uh, Barry scores, and uh, he said, uh, "I knew that uh, even if I gave John a movie that was really borderline awful, he'd still produce a score that was absolutely magnificent." And that's exactly what he's done. He's, you know, luckily this movie was a brilliant movie. There's no toys about it, and well cast and well written, um, and yeah. everything about it is a ten. But John's score is it was Oscar winning, of course. Um, and I think this is a, an exquisite blend of layering. What, what he does with his music, um, this particular cue is a good example of layering. He layers all the parts together, instruments, choral parts, and then leaves you breathless um, after. He gives you just a moment to catch your breath. There's, there's so many things going on here. Um, and uh, I will urge people, as I'm sure you will, but if, if you're if you're to do one thing today, if you are to listen to one thing, uh, make it the, the score from The Lion in Winter, and then uh, you can maybe understand why we, we talk so happily and uh, uh, about the music of John Barry. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the Bond pictures. I know that he works in, those, in various fields and is very successful in all sorts of genres of movie and, of course, has a number of Oscars to prove it. But this is probably the very highest pinnacle you can get i think and it's a it's a wonderful example of yeah, what I, perfection is i think yeah it, it may be I, I know a lot of people want to talk about dances as being a masterpiece which i, I suspect it is this is up mm -hmm. there with with that and it uh, i'm sure most of my listeners have probably seen the movie or heard the score but i'm but i'm here to tell you if you haven't seen the movie or heard the score you need to do this right now. This is a very special film that is an incredibly. Um, uh, it, 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 it's a dramedy, if you're familiar with that term. Um, there's some funny moments. There's a lot of drama in it, but I mean, Barry just captures everything about about the film just perfectly musically, and it's just a, it's phenomenal. Well, we got to quit talking about. It. Let's uh, let's hear it for ourselves. This is again. From the film called The Line in Winter. The cue is called Shinon, uh, Eleanor's Arrival, and it's written by composer John Barry.
Well, as we as we wrap things up, John, I'm kind of curious. We haven't talked about it a lot. We we might uh, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a bonus section for our patrons here in a minute, uh, where we'll talk about it some more. But I am curious, uh, as I'm sure some of my listeners are, how can they keep in touch with you and find out what you've got going on? Because you do have uh, some YouTube videos and podcast things that our listeners might be interested in. So how do they find out about you? Well, I. Um simplest thing really if um i have a podcast every every wednesday um and if you don't already subscribe to that if you go to any search engine really and and type in behind the stunts podcast and you'll find me on apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts that's uh, where you'll find it on uh, every wednesday and then on friday uh, behind the stunts on um uh, on YouTube, um, and uh, I dare say that uh, the links can be found uh, in the uh, in the description bar at the bottom here, and we'll put them all in for you. So if you if you are looking for it, simply click on that. Um, and I'm on Instagram as at Stunt Central. If you'd like to follow me, some do, you know. Um, why not? Come along and, and join <laughs> us. And uh, again, behind the stunts on Instagram. So I'm, I'm there on all the social medias, even the old-fashioned Facebook, if that's still going. I'm on there too. But, you know, yeah. we, we try and continue to fly the flag for the uh, action department and uh, those individuals who uh, continue to deliver all of those stunt sequences and action sequences in all of your favorite movies. And uh, that's that's what we try to do. And is the content different from the Wednesday and, and Friday programs, or is the content the same? No, it's different. What I try and do okay. on a Wednesday is to give you a flavor of the uh, maybe more background story into the individuals or some of the action sequences. Of course, because it's a podcast, I am explaining this to you, uh, and I use uh, some of the... Um, uh, audio from the film or m interviews with the individuals concerned. What then happens on a Friday, because we're talking about the same movie, but what will happen on a Friday is that I will go far more in depth with those. I will break down those action sequences um, to uh, the case of, of pointing out uh, certain items uh, that um, a stunt performer will <clears throat> use. Uh, we talked briefly earlier about horses. So we'll talk about the type of saddle that he's using or the type of, of stirrup that he's using or the, so that um, it's easier to not get your foot caught in it. Or, for instance, where the uh, you see a car rolling over, well, I'll point out where the, the cannon uh, is kept in the car and how we can how what that is and show you. Um, you know, little bits and pieces. And most importantly, from my point of view, is to actually point out, look, this guy here, this is this stuntman. And so I will point out the names of the individuals so that people are familiar with them. You know, it's um, uh, many occasions people will have seen a piece of footage and go, oh, yeah, this is where the guy uh, falls down this flight of stairs. But I will try and analyze this, show you, A, how he's done it, B, what padding he's wearing in order for him to do it, and point out who it is so that you know exactly. And then maybe you can associate him with other projects that he's been working on in the in, in, uh, after this particular moment so that's what i try and do so yeah. it is it's much more in depth and there's lots more going on yeah i mean you know, to my listeners look i I'm, I'm more familiar with his youtube program that comes out on fridays and and i i just find it fascinating you, you really get an insight 
into the, the work that goes into these things that just flash before you on the screen, and you don't really appreciate it sometimes, at least some of us, don't appreciate or understand the work that went in behind making that happen. And, and John helps illustrate that for you uh, and describes it in such a way that, that you know, it makes you really appreciate what these stunt performers have done. So I, I couldn't encourage you enough to subscribe to his channel. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, very kind. Thank what you. can I say, John? I, gosh, I've had, I've had a blast. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I think your, your insights into film scores is, uh, is terrific. And, and I, I love our conversation around stunt work and some of the other things that we talked about today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I've loved it. I mean, any excuse for me to uh, to sit around and talk about film music, uh, then you know I'm in my element, and uh, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be doing it on your show. And uh, it's uh, I hope that uh, those people listening will 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 have the you know get the same sort of uh, passion that that we have for it, and they can understand why we do what we do in the first place when we when we get to uh, uh, listen to this stuff and then talk endlessly about it. But it's uh, it's been great fun, and I thank you very much. Um, my pleasure. And, you know, hopefully some people will check out, if they're not familiar with some of these composers or scores, hopefully they'll check them out. Uh, so anyway, with that, uh, goodness, I uh, I can't thank our guest, John Octi, enough for, for joining us today. I want to also thank all our patrons who are helping to support the program. Uh, we're going to be recording a, a short bonus episode with John on that, so our patrons can enjoy that and get some more behind-the-scenes look of what he does. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I thank all of our listeners for joining us on the program today. I guess with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?